Church family, thank you so much for coming prepared to worship the Lord this morning. I, uh, one of my favorite things since growing up, and I've grown up in the church my whole life, is to hear His people singing His praises and His worship to Him with all their heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. So not only is it a blessing to the Lord, but it's a blessing to each other when we hear each other lifting our voices up to Him in praise. Let's ask Him for His blessing on His Word this morning. Father, thank You for the opportunity to be in Your presence this morning with Your family. Our hearts have already been so enriched and encouraged through the songs that we have been singing to You. Now, God, as we continue and as we open Your Word, I pray that You'd continue to build within us that confidence that we just sung about, that You are sovereign. You are in control. And I pray that we will leave this morning encouraged and enriched because of who you are and the privilege that we have to be in relationship with you. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, growing up, I'm not sure what your situation was, but eating meals together as a family was prioritized in the home that I grew up in. And I'm very thankful uh, for parents that recognize the benefit and the importance of eating together as a family. So as a result, I have many wonderful memories sitting around a table with, with my family, with my parents and my three older siblings, laughing, telling jokes. Even my older siblings laughing at my jokes when I was a little kid that I just made up in the moment and they were courteous enough to laugh because they thought it was funny, but it wasn't actually a joke at all, right? But laughing together, sharing stories, learning from one another, praying together, just hanging out as a family was wonderful. Now, Jen, my wife, and I have also had the opportunity and the blessing to raise our own four kids. And I can remember, especially they were younger, and I'm sure Will and Katie will testify that Ellie is a beautiful little daughter, but I'm sure as a young family with her little bit older brother, sometimes, I know it was in my case when our kids were young, sometimes mealtime feels a little bit chaotic, a little bit hectic, filled with unexpected events. Still don't understand why kids think when they're done, it's okay to just push their plate to the end of the high chair and watch it fall over. Or even as myself, the good son that I was, what, what possessed me to take a spoon, put butter on the handle, and hit it to see if I can hit the ceiling with the butter? Unexpected events happen around the table. And as Pastor Mark started us off in chapter 13 of John last week, and as we continue today, I'm wondering if that's not how the disciples were starting to feel as their last, last supper with Jesus began to progress. Because there was a lot of things going on at that meal. We learned last week as we opened up chapter 13 that Jesus was fully aware that the hour had come for him to soon leave this world and return to his Father he knew the reason he came to Jerusalem with his disciples that last time was not just to celebrate the Passover festival with them, but he knew that he was actually going to become our Passover. He knew that. The disciples didn't know or understand that. Then John records for us that Judas had already been prompted by Satan, one of the 12 who was at the meal, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that. But the other 11 disciples, they didn't have any idea what was going on in their fellow disciples' mind and in his heart. But he was at the table. Then Jesus shocked his disciples by halfway through the meal washing their feet. A task that was meant to be done by a servant at the start of the meal, not halfway through the meal, and especially not by teacher and Lord. And if you read in Luke's account about the record of the Last Supper, you will see that before Jesus began to wash their feet, the disciples were doing what exactly happens around so many of our tables. They were arguing. They were arguing over who's the greatest. That's why none of them were willing to stoop to wash each other's feet. And so Jesus had to jump in and he stooped down and humbly washed their feet for them. That's one way to kill an argument, isn't it? Teaching them. And while he taught them about what it means to be clean, he gives them this announcement in the midst of everything going on that one of them at the table isn't clean. And it's like that just went over the disciples' heads. And after he washed his feet, he sits back at his place at the table, and then he helps them to understand the significance of what he has just done for them. All this is happening, and the meal has just begun. There's a lot going on. In fact, 
John's record of all that went on during the meal takes five chapters. There's a lot going on. So let's pick up where we left off last week, and let's see what happens next. If you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 13. We will be reading from verse 17 to 35. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back, Jesus, leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, Is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish? Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is the word of the Lord. In preparing his unsuspecting disciples of what was about to take place the very next day, Jesus taught them three important lessons which would be a help to them in the days that lie ahead and which are still helpful to us as his followers today. And there was three things that Jesus wanted them to know, and he wanted them to remember. And so we're going to look at those three things. The first one is going to take the majority of our time this morning, because it takes up most of the passage, and then we will wrap up with the final two lessons that he taught them in this portion of Scripture. And the first thing that he wanted his disciples to know and to remember was his authority. He is in total control. Do you believe that? Jesus is in total control. And we see in verse 18, he immediately begins to help his disciples see that this truth that he is in control by clarifying his statement to them in verse 17. In verse 17, he says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And then in verse 18, he clarifies who the you are. He says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. Jesus makes it very clear that he chose the 12, including Judas, to be his disciples. Early on in John chapter 6, verse 70 to 71, in his reply to Simon Peter, Jesus had already affirmed this. He said to Simon, have I not chosen you the 12, yet one of you is a devil? Jesus, fully in control, knowing the deceitfulness of Judas's heart and knowing that he would betray him, still chose him to be one of his 12. Why? Why did Jesus choose Judas? Well, we see three reasons from this passage of Scripture. First of all, to fulfill prophecy. To fulfill prophecy. We see this in the second half of verse 18. Jesus said, but this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. Christ knew that part of the Father's plan to save the world required him to be betrayed, as had been prophesied. And so Jesus quotes from Psalm 41.9. That's where he is quoting from. And Psalm 41.9 
although it refers to the suffering and the mistreatment of King David by his friends, is also considered to be a messianic verse, meaning that it also not only speaks of David, but also has meaning because it points towards Jesus, the coming Messiah. Now, not everything in David's life was a model or pointed towards the coming Messiah, but there are themes there are themes in David's life that are seen as pointing toward the coming King and Messiah. And the theme of David's life that most frequently is interpreted as pointing to the Messiah was his suffering. In fact, did you know that the very next day when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was actually quoting David's prayer from Psalm 22 verse 1. Jesus wanted his disciples that night in the upper room to be confident in their belief that he truly is the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God, as prophesied about in the Scriptures. That's why in verse 19 he goes on to prophesy for them his imminent betrayal before it even happens. Verse 19, I'm telling you now before it happens, referring to his betrayal, so that when it does happen, what is his key motivation for prophesying about it? You will believe that I am who I am. Here we see Christ using the same name given by God when he identified himself to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus. Jesus was declaring there around that table to his disciples that he is in control that he is and he forever will be God. You see, folks, believing in who Jesus is as the Messiah, the Son of God, fully man, yet fully God, is essential. Do you believe that? It is essential because there's no way to have a right relationship with God without a right relationship or belief in who Jesus is. Generic faith is very popular in our world today. Everyone's talking about faith. But generic faith, apart from Jesus, is futile and hopeless. Generic faith will still leave a person separated from God and destined for eternal damnation. That's why in our mission efforts to share the gospel, we must not call people simply to faith. But we must call people to faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the object of our faith. And when we receive Jesus, we receive and are reconciled with the one who sent him, God the Father. So, in the foreknowledge of God, Jesus chose Judas to be one of his disciples to fulfill messianic prophecy. And in so doing, demonstrate to his disciples and to the world and to us today that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. But secondly, Judas was chosen to move the redemptive plan of God forward. He was chosen to move the redemptive plan of God forward. The death, burial, resurrection, and ascension was all moved forward by Judas's betrayal. Now, let's make sure we all understand this, because I don't want us to be confused. God does not create evil, but he does control it. He does not participate in sin, but in his power and wisdom, God can use and sometimes does use sin that already exists in order to fulfill his purposes. We see this in the Old Testament. Remember how God used Pharaoh in his plan to free his people from slavery in Egypt? Well, here, Judas, by the foreknowledge of God, was chosen by Jesus and used by God in his plan to free people from slavery to sin. People like you and people like me. Isn't that amazing? Judas's betrayal, rather than stop God's plan of salvation, was actually used by God to advance his plan of salvation. What man intended for evil, God intended for good. And as that plan, plan was about to unfold and move forward, as they sat around the table that night, John recalls in verse 21 that Christ's demeanor changed. He records that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Why? 
because Jesus knew the purpose for which he was sent was drawing near. And he felt deep grief and horror. Was he afraid? No. But he was deeply grieved by what was coming ahead for him. We read the same description of Jesus being troubled in his spirit when he was at his friend Lazarus's tomb. And then in chapter 12, just the passage, the chapter that we've just recently studied, as he thought about the prospect of the cross, it says that he was troubled in his spirit. The reality of being betrayed by a friend, the pain of being lashed, repeatedly struck in the head, spat upon, ridiculed, the agony of being crucified, and ultimately facing the wrath of God for the sins of the world, including yours and mine, even though he was completely innocent, was weighing heavy on the mind and the heart of our Savior, Jesus Christ. As I thought about that this week, I thought, you know what, there's an important lesson there that we need to learn that sometimes we don't like to accept. Even though God is in total control of every detail of our lives does not mean he will not permit us to go through difficult circumstances that cause great pain and hurt. But what we know is as we go through that, he is with us. He is with us. And later on in the meal, in John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says to his disciples, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Psalm 23 and verse 4, even though I walk through the darkest valley, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And in his troubled spirit, in that moment around the table, intimate moment with his disciples, Jesus breaks the news. In verse, the second half of verse 21, he looks at his disciples and he says, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And did you notice the disciples' response in verse 22 when he announced that? It caught my attention. They stared at one another at, loss, at a loss to know which one of them he meant. What does that tell you about Judas? Tells us a lot about Judas, doesn't it? Judas wasn't an incredible pretender. He was a total fake. For three years, he'd given his life to following Jesus with these other 11 guys. And if you played on a sports team or if you've gone on a missions trip, for instance, those in our church family who are over in the Holy Land right now, I guarantee you they know a lot more about each other after these two weeks than they did before they went. When you're with people doing everything together, you find out pretty quick what people are like. They had done everything together, and yet not one of the other 11 even sniffed out that Judas was a fake, perfect hypocrite. And oftentimes we look at Judas, but as I was studying this week, I went, oh, man, Jesus, you are in total control. You are in total control their lack of knowledge regarding Judas was just another example of Christ being in total control. Christ knew this about Judas. For three years, he never treated Judas any differently than the other guys. They didn't have a knowledge. Jesus didn't treat him any differently. Why? Because Christ is in control. And Christ knew that his hour had not yet come. But when it is, he will reveal who this guy is, who they've done everything with for the past three years. The truth is, we may be able to fool people, brothers and sisters, but Jesus knows us inside and out. And even though he knows us inside and out, he continues to give us opportunities of grace to come clean. That's my personal testimony. That's how Jesus saved me when I was in junior high. I was a Judas. I was an excellent pretender. I was a great faker. I was the son of a pastor, the son of a missionary, and I was involved in everything at the church and did it with excellence. But I was a completely different person outside the church. 
No one at my school would have ever known that I was a believer. No one at the church would have ever known the things I was involved with outside of the church. And then God graciously gave me an opportunity in grade 8 at a missionary retreat to come clean. Because my fear was if my two worlds ever collide, I'm in big trouble. They're going to find out I'm a total con. And in December, that missionary retreat, God gave me that opportunity, come clean. And I came forward as a young man, knelt at the altar, and that day I received Jesus Christ as my Savior. I became a follower, no longer a fan. And this burden to try and keep my two worlds separate was gone. And so I just encourage you here this morning, just because we're all in church may not mean that we are all in the body of Christ yet. You will know if you're a pretender. You will know if you're a fake because the Holy Spirit will convict you. And this morning, he's given you an opportunity. Come clean. Don't live with the pressure of trying to be two people, a double agent. Come clean. This is how gracious Christ is even to the end. He chose Judas to fulfill prophecy. He chose him to move forward the redemptive plan of God. And in this final section, we see Judas was chosen because Jesus wanted to demonstrate how to love people with compassion and common grace. With compassion and common grace. Not only did he wash Judas' feet, if you thought that's hard enough to wash your enemy's feet, it's going to get more convicting this morning for you. I'm sorry, it's just, it just is. Jesus, as the host of the meal, also gave, listen to this, Judas a place of honor at the table and served him as a guest of honor. Are you kidding me? You see, at that time, Jews adopted the Roman triclinium table. This was a low three-sided table shaped like a U. And if, if any of you are into marketing or have business uh, energy, someone needs to get a hold of Ikea and bring this type of furniture back into the market because I think it will sell really easy. Because what's get be what gets better than eating and lounging at the same time? It's a phenomenal concept. And not only that, I would have never heard my mom say, Calvin, sit up straight in your chair. It would have been amazing. So here they are around this seat. The guests would sit on cushions around the perimeter of this table, and the, the center was left open for the servers to have access to give them food. So as they ate, their bodies were supported by their left elbow or forearm. They would eat with their right hand, and their feet were extended away from the table. I mean, it was a chilled-out way to eat. And we discover in verse, 30, in verse 23 that the Scripture says, the disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining next to him. Now you understand what that meant. You can picture how they were lying together. And by the way, that's John, the author of the gospel. That's the first time he identifies himself. The disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining next to him on the right side. We know he was on the right side because after Simon caught John's attention, hey John, can you find out from Jesus who it is that he says is going to betray him? Because of where John was sitting, he was able to just roll back. And as he rolled back, he would have been right at Jesus' chest to be able to ask him privately and quietly, Lord, who is it? He was reclining. So he leans back. He says, Lord, who is it? John was sitting in a spot where he was able to quickly get Jesus' attention and privately. And who was in the other place of honor near Jesus on his left side? Who do you think? Judas. Judas was on his left side. That's right. How do we know that? Because we read in verse 26 that Jesus was able to dip a piece of bread into the common dish and then serve that morsel of bread to Judas. So here we have John going, Lord, who is it? Jesus says to John, it's the one who had dipped the bread and give him the morsel. He dips the bread, and he's able to feed Judas the morsel of bread. Now, you might think, well, that's nice. He gave him some bread. No, actually, that was very significant in that time. 
And even in how he revealed Judas to be the betrayer by feeding him that morsel of bread, we see the grace and the mercy of Christ towards his soon-to-be betrayer. Because it was not uncommon for the host of a banquet during that time to pass a choice morsel of food to a guest as a gesture of friendship. Do you see how beautiful Jesus is? This is unbelievable. Jesus treats his soon-to-be betrayer like a guest with honor. In stark contrast to Judas's last gesture to Jesus of betrayal in the garden. And in that moment, we read in verse 27, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Verse 2, we read that he was prompted by Satan. Now, Satan has possessed Judas. However, this does not exonerate Judas. It doesn't acquit him of what he's about to do. Because his wicked heart desired exactly what the devil desired, the death of Jesus. The devil and Judas were in accord. And because of his unbelief, Judas was handed over completely to the power of darkness. Do you see how Judas is a perfect example of what we learned a couple of weeks ago? The two truths that we have to hold on to, but are so difficult for our finite minds to reconcile. God is totally sovereign. He chose Judas. But man is fully accountable for his actions and his decisions. And how in control is Jesus? In the second half of verse 27, he dispatches Judas and Satan to pursue the course they have set out for themselves. He says to him, what you're about to do, do quickly. He says to him, Judas, who is now possessed by Satan, another sign of the authority that Jesus Christ has over Satan. What you're about to do, go and do it. This is why the other disciples heard Jesus say that to Judas, but they didn't understand why. They didn't understand because they didn't know what John knew. John knew because of his interaction with Jesus and then watching him take the bread and feed Judas. John knew, oh, it's Judas. But the other disciples had not heard that conversation. They did not know. So all they heard was Jesus say to Judas, what you're about to do, go and do quickly. So no wonder they thought maybe because Judas looks after the money that Jesus was sending them out to stock up supplies for the rest of the festival. Or perhaps he was sending them to go give to the poor because during that time of the festival, the have-nots were supposed to share with those who had not. But there was more to that. Jesus was in total control of every detail. Even down, we see in verse 30, to orchestrating Judas's departure to take place at night. It took place at night. Knowing symbolically that darkness represented the complete opposite of who he is. Jesus is the light of the world. And so when Judas walked out of that candlelit upper room into the dark of night, he walked away from the light of the world. And as the door shut behind him, his fate was sealed. In unbelief, Judas turned his back on the only source of life. He chose darkness over light. He chose death over life. And I urge you this morning, and those who are listening online, don't make the same fatal mistake. Choose life. God has graced you with the opportunity this morning to believe. And by believing in him, you may have life. In the midst of seemingly chaotic and unexpected events, Christ wanted his disciples and he wants us to understand that we must believe and hold on to the truth that Jesus is in complete control of every detail of your life. I like how John MacArthur words it. In his providence, God orchestrates every event in life, even suffering, temptation, and sin, to accomplish both his temporal an eternal benefit. Jesus is in control. Jesus is in 
control. Few truths can engage our affections, can calm our hearts, influence our decisions like the reality of believing and holding on to the fact of the sovereign power of Jesus. And against the backdrop of human wickedness, represented by Judas, Christ's character and his control are revealed in such vivid and stunning details, aren't they? Absolutely blew me away as I studied this passage this week. He is in total control. So the question I ask you and I ask myself this morning is, are we resting in his control? Are you resting in his control? God, in Psalms 46.10, says, Be still, be still, and know that I am God. Christ wanted his disciples to know and to remember. After he was gone, he's in control. I might not understand everything that's going on, but he's in control. He is in control. The second thing he wanted them to know and remember is his glory. His glory, the visible manifestation of God's excellent character. With Judas's departure, the final events were set in motion for Christ's arrest, his mock trial, his beating, and ultimately his crucifixion. But did you notice in verse 31 and 32, Jesus doesn't focus on his imminent death. Look what he says. Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once, referring to his crucifixion. Rather than talking about his imminent death, he takes their focus and says, no, 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 it's about glorification. It's about being glorified. And notice he speaks in the past tense. So he hasn't gone to the cross yet, but he already says that he has been glorified. God has been glorified through Jesus' life. God's power has also been made visible through the many signs he performed, through his life of perfect obedience. God is glorified. Even in washing the disciples' feet, Jesus reveals more of God's glory, the excellent character of God. God's glory was in Jesus and radiated through Jesus. And when God's excellence is seen, people are prompted to give him the glory and the honor and the worship he is due. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16? In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and what? Give glory to your Father in heaven. You see, in the Old Testament, when the Israelites needed to be reminded of God's glory, he appeared to them and revealed his character and attributes in different ways. For example, do you remember during the Exodus, how did he lead them? A pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. How did he feed them? Quail they got at night, manna they got in the morning. Practical ways of how God revealed his character and the excellence of his character to his people. In the New Testament, God's excellence, his glory was displayed visibly through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the glory of God. He is the manifestation of God's excellence. And because he himself is God, he perfectly revealed the excellent character of God. So when people look at Jesus, who do they see? They see God. When people look at Jesus, who do they understand better? They understand God better. And the very next day at the cross would be the supreme place where this divine radiance of God's glory would be visibly displayed through our Savior, Jesus Christ. The most horrifying event in human history was about to also be the most glorious event in human history. You see, you need to understand that the cross was the highest moment of God's revelation to mankind. In the cross, we learn more about God's excellence than any other moment in history. What do we learn in the death of Jesus? We see God's holiness and his love. We see his righteousness and his mercy. We see his justice and his grace. We see his sovereignty and his humility. We see his wisdom and his patience. All displayed his glory through his son on the cross. And he wanted his disciples to remember that. This is why true, passionate worship has to spring from a heart that has been gripped by God's grace as displayed on the cross through his one and only Son. 
At that moment, the cross was the glory of Jesus. But we know there was more to follow and is more still to come. God's glory was revealed in his resurrection. God's glory was revealed in his ascension, where Jesus returned to the glory he had enjoyed with the Father before he came to be with us. And still to come, the full and final triumph of Christ at his second coming. Oh, what a glorious day that's going to be. So what do we do while we wait for that day? How has God's glory continued to be revealed in the world today? There's three ways. In his creation in general, I would encourage you to read Psalm 19, verse 1 to 6 when you go home. God's glory is revealed in his creation. God's glory is revealed through humanity in general. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says that everyone is created in the image of God. Believers are not the only one who reveals the excellent character of God. Although we should do a way better job than an unbeliever. But if you see an unbeliever doing something that is contrary to our selfish nature, they don't know that, but they are actually revealing the excellence of God's character. So it's through creation in general. It's through humanity in general. But it is through the church in particular that God's glory is being revealed on the earth today. Listen to what 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says of us. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we have been rescued out of darkness into the kingdom of the Son He loves to reveal His character. Listen closely. God's glory was revealed in and through Christ as he willingly obeyed the Father's will, even knowing what was going to come the next day after the supper, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ's glory will be revealed in and through us as we willingly obey all the commands of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. When people look at Jesus, they see God. When people look at Jesus, they understand God better. When people look at you and I, they should see Jesus. When people look at you and I, they should understand the excellence of Jesus Christ. What message are we communicating? Is it clear? Is it confusing? Or is it totally absent? Our core value here at Calvary Baptist Church is that we believe showing people Christ is who we are. That's one of our core values. So not only are you resting in his authority, but I ask you and I ask myself today, am I, are you reflecting the glory? Are you manifesting through your life the excellence of God's character? We should be. The last thing he wanted his disciples to know and to remember is his love. His authority, His glory, and finally, His love. His love, the new standard for Christian community. And it's interesting, before He gave them this new command regarding how they are to live, He tells them something in verse 33 that would have been so confusing and disheartening for them to hear. He lets them know that He will be leaving them, and they cannot come with him. Put yourself, put yourself in their shoes. They've left everything to follow this man. And now around the dinner table, while they're reclining together, he says, guys, I'm leaving you. And where I'm going, you, you cannot come. Imagine how they felt. Another unexpected event during the meal. And in this moment, we again see the care and the beauty of Jesus Christ for his children. And he refers to his disciples as my children. He knew this news was going to be devastating for them to receive. This was not a message he could simply drop in the middle of a conversation. Hey, Peter, have you got the fish for the rest of the weekend? Oh, and by the way, I'm leaving you and you can't come with me. It's not how Jesus operates. He's compassionate. He's caring. 
And he says, my children, I'm leaving, and you cannot come with me. Jesus knew the dynamics of their relationship were about to change. They'll no longer be able to walk physically with him. He was going to the cross, and he must go alone. Because only he could go to the cross and pay the penalty that satisfies the Father's demand of justice for the sin of the world. Your sin and my sin. Their relationship with him was not the only thing that was going to change. Their relationship with one another was going to undergo a significant overhaul. As a result, that's why he gave them this new command. And brothers and sisters, as we wrap up this morning, just taking a quick look at this new command, can I just say, I believe within the body of Christ, the way we live in community with one another needs to continually undergo a significant overhaul and be upgraded. Look what he says in verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Verse 35, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. With his departure, they were going to form a new community that would be defined by love. Love for who? One another. Three times in these two verses, Jesus mentions one another. He wanted them to understand, yes, I'm leaving you, but I'm not leaving you alone. He was leaving them to be together. And in the not-too-distant future, he and the Father would also send them the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, to be with them. So even though he calls this command to love one another a new command, there was nothing really new about God commanding his people to love others, was there? He had already told them that. Leviticus 19, 18, God had commanded his people to love your neighbor as your... Love your neighbor as yourself. But here he says, I'm giving you a new command. So in what sense then was this command new? It was new because it is sourced in Christ's love for them. You will now love one another because I have loved you. And this command to love one another as Christ loved them. Christ's love for them was the new standard for love. How did Christ love them? Selflessly, sacrificially, understandably forgivingly. That's how he's loved you. That's how he's loved us. And had he not paid for our sin on the cross, we would not have our new righteous nature. We would be unable to love one another the way Jesus has set the example for us. This kind of love is produced only through the new covenant, through a relationship with Jesus Christ and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit within us. Because he first loved me, I'm able to love him and love one another. And this is not optional. It's not optional. I want you to see that today. If you look at verse 34, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Listen to what John wrote in 1 John 4, 19 and 20. This is very strong language, folks. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God, here's this word again, must love God their brother and sister. I do not have an option to love you. I must love you because he has loved me and commanded me to love you the way he has loved you. You do not have an option but to love me. This is what he has commanded us to do. And he doesn't say it would be great if you do this. He said, no, you must do this. It was new because it's sourced in Christ's love. And finally, it's new because it is what defines us as the body of Christ. This is so critical. Every organization is defined by certain characteristics. If I was to say to you, if you see a brown truck with yellow letters uh, approaching a house on your street and a person in a brown suit gets out and delivers a package to the door, you know that person works for? Wow, you're smart. How many people can identify Calvary Baptist Church just like you identified UPS, because they have fully seen how we love one another. 
As easy as it is for us to identify UPS, it should be as easy to identify us as disciples of Jesus Christ because of our love for one another. This love is at the heart of our mission as the church of Jesus Christ. Listen to how Jesus prays later during the meal. There's so much we still got to get to. Not today, but in the weeks ahead. It's still during the meal. Listen to what Jesus prays for his disciples. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do you understand that our love for one another is going to be a significant way in which we are going to be effective in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's so vital. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And if we love this way, look what happens. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. I'm all for getting better at evangelism. I'm all for learning how to engage in conversations with people who are not walking in the light. I'm all for that. But those things are a waste of time if we are not loving one another. That's a fraud. We will not prove to those we're trying to reach that Jesus is real unless we learn to love one another selflessly, sacrificially, understandably, and forgivingly. This is what will prove to the world that we are his disciples. And such love, when we are obedient and we live that way, will attract unbelievers to Christ. But here's what's also really important, which I learned during the last three years. It will also keep us as believers strong and united in a world that is hostile to God. Disunity within the body of Christ will significantly hinder our effort to fulfill the Great Commission to make disciples. It's just the way it is. And Jesus says, I want you to remember, love as I have loved you. I love how J.D. Greer puts it, love on display in the church is the church's most powerful apologetic. In other words, it is the church's best way to defend what we believe as we love one another. So brothers and sisters, are you resting in the authority of Christ? Are you reflecting the glory of Christ in your life? And finally, are you replicating the love of Christ towards one another? This is what Jesus wanted his disciples to know and to remember, his authority, his glory, and his love. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to have the Bible, your word, in our language that we can understand and read and study and share with one another. Thank you that you feed us through your word. Thank you for sending Jesus, your one and only son. Thank you that he set the example for us. Thank you for how we have learned today how beautiful he is through his care, his compassion, his grace to his disciples, including Judas. Father, I pray that you would help us to rest, help us to reflect, and help us to replicate the love of your Son, Jesus Christ, in our community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know what's incredible is he is the great I am, and yet he allows us to be in relationship with him. Judas's unbelief walked away. But he has given us opportunities for grace to believe and to be in relationship with him. It's incredible when I know who I was and he gave me that opportunity in grade eight. And maybe you're here this morning, you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We do not know how much longer that opportunity of grace is going to be available. If the Spirit is moving in your heart today, I need to know Jesus. Come and pray with us. We would love to introduce you to Jesus. Maybe you're here and you're a pretender and you know it. Come clean today. Get that burden off. Become a follower and not a fan of Jesus Christ. I'm going to share a quick testimony with you because I couldn't share it at the first service. because it hadn't happened yet. 
Maybe you're wondering, does God really understand every detail of my life? This week, as a, as a dad, Daryl doesn't even know this, but he, uh, he came home and he said, uh, I'm going to get laid off. But he was okay. I wasn't. I thought I need to be in control. So the next day I emailed a friend who I know has maybe opportunities for employment and I emailed him and I said, hey, just as a dad, I'm reaching out to you. Looks like Daryl's going to be laid off. And uh, if you have anything, let me know. It would be a great help. Well, we were in New York yesterday visiting my eldest son. I got a text from him. Hey, give me a call. I was like, great, great. What he didn't know is that on Thursday, Daryl came home and he said, hey, I've got good news. He said, uh, some people who have seniority in the company have actually chosen to take the layoff. I'm not going to get laid off. But I've already started working on arranging your next job, son. <laughs> so you know what happened in between services today? That gentleman came to me and he says, Calvin, I feel so bad. That's why I was trying to get a hold of you. That email you sent me has vanished from my computer. I felt so bad. I was Googling um, on, my, on my emails, Daryl, work, employment. Nothing came up. And as I sat there talking to my brother and the Lord in between services, I just, I felt rebuked by Jesus in a good way. My child, I'm in total control of every detail. So you know what, folks? It's for all of us. Whether you're up here preaching, whether you're there, it doesn't matter. He is in control. John wrote his gospel. John wrote his gospel so that you would have your confidence built up in his authority and in his glory and in his love. And I pray the Holy Spirit through his word has done that for you today. Rest. He's in control. Reflect his glory. Replicate his love. Let's go and be who he wants us to be until the day he returns. Amen. God bless you.